Chapter Ten of Nothing But the Truth by Frederick Isham. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Ten Into Bondage. She continued to stare for some moments while he stood frozen to the spot. Then the young lady's face changed. Fear, startled wonder, gave way to an expression of growing comprehension, and into her eyes came such an excited look. You, said Miss Dolly in a thrilling whisper, and then, pick it up, please. Instead of picking anything up, he didn't know what, Bob was about to rush for the door when, stop or I'll scream, exclaimed Miss Dolly. I'll scream so loud I'll wake everyone in the house. Bob stopped. In his eyes was an agony of contrition and shame. Miss Dolly, however, seemed quite self-possessed. She might have been frightened at first, but she was no longer that. Her temperamental, somewhat childish face wore a thrill of pleasurable anticipation. "'Now pick it up,' she repeated. "'What?' stammered Bob in a shrinking voice. "'The brooch, to be sure. Didn't you drop it?' "'I?' said Bob, drawing his dressing-gown closer about him. They were speaking in stage whispers. "'Of course. Wasn't it what you came for?' "'Came for? Great heavens! Do you think—' "'Think?' said Miss Dolly. "'I know.' Bob looked at her. Her face appeared elf-like, uncannily wise. But for all her outward calm, her eyes were great, big, excited eyes. His horrified glance turned quickly from them to regard a gleaming diamond and pearl brooch on the rug. "'Jumping Jehoshaphat! You don't think I'm—' "'One of those thrilling society highwaymen, or social buccaneers?' said Miss Dolly. "'Of course, and I'm so glad it happened like this. I wouldn't have missed it for the world. Really, I've always wanted to meet one of those popular heroes. And now, to think my dream has come true. It's just like a play, isn't it?' "'It is not,' replied Bob savagely. This was too much. It was just about the last straw. I—' Then he stopped. Suppose anyone should hear him. Miss Dolly's temperamental and comprehensive eyes read his thought. "'I don't think there's any danger,' she purred soothingly. "'You see, there's a bathroom on one side of the room and a brick wall on the other. I wouldn't be surprised if all the rooms are separated by brick partitions,' she confided to him. "'Mrs. Ralston likes everything perfect. Soundproof, fireproof, and all that.' "'See here,' said Bob. I was just wandering around, couldn't sleep, and I came in here quite by mistake. Thought it was my own room. With some vehemence. Miss Dolly shook her head reprovingly, and her temperamental hair flowed all about her over the white counterpane. She knew it must look very becoming, and it was such wonderful hair, that is, for dark hair. Bob preferred light. Not that he was thinking of hair now. Can't you do better than that? asked the temperamental young thing. "'Better than what?' queried Bob, ill-naturedly. He was beginning to feel real snappy. "'Invent a better whopper, I mean?' "'It isn't a whopper, and—and and I positively refuse to stay here any longer. Positively!' "'Oh, no, not positively,' said Miss Dolly, nodding a wise young head. "'You're going to stay, unless—you know the alternative. Since I'm destined to be a heroine, I want a regular play scene. I don't want my part cut down to nothing.' Don't you love thief plays, Mr. Bennett? It's such fun to see people running around, not knowing who is the thief. I'm sure I feel quite privileged in this instance." Bob growled beneath his breath. He was handsome enough, certainly, for a matinee hero. 
He was tall and lithe, and had such clean-cut features. The temperamental young thing regarded him with thrilling approval. He entirely realized her ideal of a social burglar. It seemed almost too good to be true. "'I knew you were different from other men,' she said. "'Something told me from the very first. Perhaps it was the way you tangoed. I expected you would ask me to trot, but you didn't,' reprovingly. "'Suppose you were otherwise engaged?' glancing toward the brooch. "'Not the way you think,' said Bob gloomily, looking more striking than ever in that melancholy pose. It seemed to harmonize with a crime-stained career. "'Of course,' murmured Dolly. "'It was you who got Mrs. Templeton Blenfield's wonderful emeralds?' "'It was not,' answered Bob curtly. "'You were at that costume ball where she lost them?' "'Suppose I was,' he snapped. "'Yes, snapped. There is a limit to human endurance.' "'And you were at Mrs. Benton Briscoe's when a tiara mysteriously disappeared?' "'Well, I'm hanged,' said Bob, staring at her. "'Oh, I hope not. That is, I hope you won't be, some day,' answered Dolly. "'Are you going to fess up? You'd better. Maybe I won't betray you, yet. Maybe I won't at all, if you're real nice.' "'Oh,' said Bob, whereupon she smiled at him sweetly, just as if to say it was nice and exciting to have a great big bold and wildly handsome society highwayman in her power. Why, she could send him to jail if she wanted to. She had but to lift a little finger, and he would have to jump. The consciousness of guilty knowledge and power she possessed made her glow all over. She didn't really know, though, yet, whether she would be kind or severe. "'Do you operate alone or with accomplices?' she asked, after a few moments' pleasurable anticipations. "'I beg pardon?' Bob was again gazing uneasily toward the door. "'Got any pals?' She tried to talk the way they do in the thief-books. "'No, I haven't,' snapped Bob. That truth-pact made it necessary to answer the most silly questions. "'Well, I didn't know but you had,' murmured the temperamental young thing. "'I heard a dog barking, and that made me think you might have them. You sure you didn't let anybody into the house?' "'I didn't.' Miss Dolly snuggled herself together more cosily. She seemed about to ask some more questions. Perhaps she would want to know if he had let anybody out, and then he would have to tell her. "'Look here,' said Bob, desperately. "'Maybe it hasn't occurred to you, but this—this this isn't exactly proper. Me here like this, and you—' "'Oh, I'm not afraid,' answered Miss Dolly, with wonderful assurance. "'I can quite take care of myself.' "'But—but,' more desperately, "'if I should be discovered, can't you see, for your own sake—' "'My own sake?' the big, innocent eyes opened wider. In that case, of course, I'd tell them the truth. The truth! How he hated the word! You mean that I— Glancing toward the brooch. Of course! Tranquilly. Bob tried to consider. He could see what would happen to him, if they were interrupted. It certainly was a most preposterous conversation, anyhow. Besides, it wasn't the place or the time for a conversation of any kind. He had just about made up his mind that he would go, whether she screamed or not, and take the consequences, however disagreeable they might be, when— "'Well, trot along,' said Miss Dolly graciously. "'I suppose you've got a lot of work to do tonight, and it's rather unkind to detain you. Only pick up the brooch before you go.' He obeyed. "'Now put it on the dresser and leave it there. Hard to do that, isn't it?' "'No, it isn't,' savagely. "'Well, you can go now. By the way, Mrs. Vanderpool has a big bronze-colored diamond surrounded by wonderful pink pearls. 
It's an antique and would adorn a connoisseur's collection. But I tell you I am not. My, how stupid to keep on saying that. But of course you must really be very clever. Society highwaymen always are. Good night. So glad I was thinking of something else and forgot to lock the door. Bob went to the door and she considerately waited until he had reached it. Then she put out a hand and pushed a convenient button which shut off the light. Bob opened the door but closed it quickly again. He fancied he saw someone out there in the hall, a shadowy form in the distance, but was not absolutely sure. "'Aren't you gone?' said the temperamental young thing. "'Shh!' said Bob. For some moments there was silence, thrilling enough even for her. Then Bob gently opened the door once more, though very slightly, and peered out of the tiniest crack, but he failed to see anyone now, so he concluded he must have been mistaken. The shadows were most deceptive. Anyhow, there was more danger in staying than in going, so he slid out and closed the door. At the same moment he heard a very faint click. It seemed to come from the other side of the hall. He didn't like that, he told himself, and waited to make sure no one was about. The ensuing silence reassured him somewhat, and the click, he argued, might have come from the door he himself had closed. The temperamental young thing, holding her breath, heard him now move softly but swiftly away. She listened, nothing happened. Then she stretched her young form luxuriously and pondered on the delirious secret that was all hers. A secret that made Bob her slave, abjectly her slave, like the servant of the lamp. She could compel him to turn somersaults if she wanted to. Bob awoke with a slight headache, which, however, didn't surprise him any. He only wondered his head didn't ache more. People came down to breakfast almost any time, and sometimes they didn't come down at all, but sipped coffee in their rooms, continental fashion. It was late when Bob got up, so a goodly number of the guests, the exceptions including Mrs. Dan and Mrs. Clarence, were down by the time he sauntered into the big sunroom, where breakfast was served to all with American appetites. The temperamental little thing managed, accidentally, to encounter him at the doorway before he got into the room with the others. He shivered slightly when he saw her, though she looked most attractive in her rather bizarre way. Bob gazed beyond her, however, to a vision in the window. Vision. That just described what Miss Gwendolen looked like, with the sunlight on her and making an aureole of her glorious fair hair. Of course, one could put an adjective or two before the vision, such as beautiful, or something even stronger, without being accused of extravagance. The little dark thing, uttering some platitude, followed Bob's look, but she didn't appear jealous. She hadn't quite decided how much latitude to give Bob. That young gentleman noticed that the hammer-thrower, looking like one of those stalwart masculine tea-passers in an English novel, was not far from Miss Gwendolen. His big fingers could apparently handle delicate china as well as mighty iron-balls or sledges. He comported himself as if his college education had included a course at Tuller's in Oxford Street, in London, where six-foot guardsmen are taught to manoeuvre among spindle-legged tables and to perform almost impossible feats without damage to crockery. Miss Dolly now manoeuvred so as to draw Bob aside in the hall to have a word or two before he got to bacon and eggs. What she said didn't improve his appetite. "'I'm so disappointed in you,' she began in a low voice. He asked why, though not because he really cared to know. "'After that hint of mine,' she explained reproachfully, 
About Mrs. Vanderpool's bronze diamond, I mean. I fear I do not understand you, said Bob coldly. She bent nearer. Of course I thought it would disappear, she murmured. I expected you to execute one of those clever coups, and so I went purposely to Mrs. Vanderpool's room on some pretext this morning to learn if it was gone. But it wasn't. I cleverly led the conversation up to it, and she showed it to me. "'Great Scott!' he exclaimed. "'Did you think she wouldn't have it to show you? That it had found its way to my pockets?' "'Of course,' she answered. "'And you are quite sure you haven't it, after all?' she asked suspiciously. "'How could I when you saw—oh, you might have substituted a counterfeit brooch just like it for—' Bob groaned. "'You certainly have absorbed those plays,' he remarked. "'I expected a whole lot of things would be gone,' she went on. "'And apparently, with disappointment, no one has missed anything. It's quite tame. Did you get discouraged because you failed to land the loot, is that the word, in my case? Do you then just go prosaically to bed? I certainly went to bed, though there was nothing prosaic about the procedure. And yet what a dull night it must have been for you. I shouldn't call it that. No? She shifted the conversation. Who do you suppose has come? Dickie Donnelly said he had arrived in town on some business and took advantage of the opportunity to make a little call on me. Incidentally, he seems interested in you. Said he would make it a point to see you after you got down. He's out on the veranda smoking now, I guess. He wanted to talk to me, but I made an excuse to shoo him away. He isn't half so exciting as you are, you know. I'm quite positive now I couldn't marry him and annex his old chimneys to ours for all the world. Chimneys are such commonplace means to a livelihood, Mr. Bennett, don't you think? They are so ugly and dependable, not at all romantic and precarious. They just smoke and you get richer. There isn't a single thrill in a whole forest of chimneys. But I mustn't really keep you from your breakfast any longer, she added with sudden sedulousness. I've quite planned what we're going to do today. You have? With a slight accent on the first word. Yes, she assured him quietly. So run along now. The slave, glad to get away, started to obey when— One moment, said Miss Dolly, as if seized with an afterthought. Dickie asked about you so particularly that it occurred to me that— Well, do you think he harbors any suspicions? Suspicions? Yes. Do you imagine he, too, by any chance, may have guessed, you know? And Dolly again drew closer, her eyes beaming with new excitement. Bob looked disagreeable, but he had to reply. "'I'm sure he doesn't think what you do,' he answered ill-humouredly. Dolly looked relieved, but still dubious. She didn't appear to notice that lack of appreciation in Bob's manner for her interest in his welfare. "'Well, you'd better see him,' she said, in the tone of one who had already established herself to the post of secret adviser. "'He's bent on an interview with you. Says it's business. And speaking about business, what business could he possibly have in that dinky little town? Unless he wanted to buy the whole village. His conduct is, to say the least, slightly mysterious. Dickie may prove a factor to be reckoned with. That's true enough, assented Bob, and went in to breakfast. The temperamental little thing gazed after him approvingly. She quite gloried in her big burglar. It was so nice to know something no one else knew, to be a little wiser than all the rest of the world, including the police and the detective force. Bob must be terribly resourceful and subtle to have deceived them all so thoroughly. 
He only seemed a little dense at times, just to keep up the deception. It was a part of the role. He wouldn't even let her, who knew his secret, see under the surface and she liked him all the better for his reticence. It lent piquancy to the situation and added zest to the game. Dickie's manner had certainly seemed to her unduly sober. He appeared to have something on his mind, though of course he was awfully eager and joyous about seeing her. At the breakfast-table Bob only dallied with his hot rolls and took but a few gulps of coffee. The monocle man who sat nearby noticed that want of appetite. "'Don't seem very keen for your feed this morning,' he observed jocularly. "'No, not over-peckish,' answered Bob. "'Why not? You look uh, fit enough.' reaching for one of those racks for unbuttered toast which Mrs. Ralston had brought home with her from London. "'Headache, for one thing,' returned Bob. It was the truth, or part of the truth. No one looked sympathetic, however. In fact, with the exception of the monocle man—Mrs. Ralston hadn't yet come down—every one in there made it apparent he or she desired as little as possible of Mr. Bennett's society. Bob soon got up, casting a last bitter glance at Miss Gerald, who seemed quite contented with her stalwart, honest-looking hammer-thrower. And why not? His character, Bob reflected, was unimpeachable. He looked so good and honest, and so utterly wholesome, that Bob, who himself was tainted with suspicion, wanted to get out of his presence. So Bob went out to the porch to hunt up Dickie and ascertain what was the matter with him. It didn't take Bob long to learn what was worrying Dickie. He was carrying the weight of a new and tremendous responsibility. He had now become an emissary, a friend in need, to Clarence and the Commodore, who certainly needed one at this moment. It seemed that Mrs. Clarence and Mrs. Dan had set detectives searching for Gee-Gee and Giddup, and they had succeeded in locating one of the pair, partly by a freckle and a turned-up nose. The detectives must have worked fast. They were assisted by the fact that foolish Clarence had kept up an innocent and platonic friendship with Gee-Gee's chum, after that momentous evening when Bob had been along. Now, when a young man begins to hang around the vicinity of a stage door in a big car, he is apt to make himself a subject for remark, and to become known, especially to the doorkeeper who takes a fatherly interest in his Shetland herd. As Giddup and Gee-Gee were inseparable, it was but a step to place one by the other. Detectives, Dickie informed Bob, had already interviewed the ladies. They may have offered them money, in exchange for information. Mrs. Dan was very rich in her own name. She could outbid the Commodore. Giddup might hesitate or refuse to supply or manufacture information for filthy lucre, but Gee-Gee was known to be ambitious. She longed to soar, and here was a means to that end, quite a legitimate and customary one. "'Why, that girl would do anything to get herself talked about,' said Dickie sadly, thinking of Dan, and incidentally, too, of Clarence. "'She'd manufacture information by the carload. Out of a little teeny-weeny remnant of truth, she'd build a magnificent divorce case. Think of the glorious publicity. Why, Gee-Gee and one of the manager chaps would sit up nights to see how many columns they could fill each day in the press. They'd make poor old Dan out worse than Nero.' They'd picture him as a monster. They'd give him claws. And Clarence would come crawling after him like a slimy snake. Incidentally, they'd throw in a few weeps for Gee-Gee, and then some more for Giddup. Why, man, when I think of the mischief you've done— Me? said Bob miserably, almost overwhelmed by this pathetic picture Dickie had drawn. 
But it wasn't. It was truth, Dickie snorted. What do you want me to do, commit suicide, annihilate truth? That would be one way of doing it. I'm sure I shouldn't much mind. Shall I poison truth or blow its brains out? Or shall I take it down to the lake and jump in with it? Do you think it has made me very happy? What am I? What have I become? Where's my good name? He was thinking of what the temperamental little thing considered him. Say, do I look like a criminal? he demanded, confronting Dickie. The latter stared, then shrugged. Of course, if Bob wanted to rave. Or a crazy man. Do I look crazy? He continued almost fiercely. Well, there are people in there, indicating the house, who think I am. Dickie started slightly and looked thoughtful. You ask the judge or the doctor or a lot of others. Ask Miss Gwendolyn Gerald, he concluded bitterly. Dickie shifted a leg. It might not be a bad idea, he said in a peculiar tone, whose accent Bob didn't notice, however. For some moments the two young men sat moodily and silently side by side. Where are Dan and Clarence now? asked Bob in a dull tone, after a while. Gone to New York. Hustled there early this morning after some hurry-up messages gave an inkling of what was going on. I'm to do my best at this end, keep my eyes on Mrs. Dan and Mrs. Clarence, and incidentally learn and do what I can. As he spoke, Dickie tapped his leg with his cane. At the same time, he bestowed another of those peculiar looks on Bob. Just then, a young lady stepped from the house and came toward them. She was in the trimmest attire, for shooting or fishing, and looked extraordinarily trim herself. A footman followed with two light rods and a basket. "'Come on,' she said lightly to Bob. "'Might as well get started. It's almost noon.' "'Started?' he stammered, staring at her. "'Yes, on that fishing excursion we planned.' "'We?' he repeated in the same tone, and then, "'All right,' he said. It occurred to him, if he went off somewhere alone, with the temperamental young thing, he wouldn't at any rate have to bob against a score or so of other people throughout the day. Better one than a crowd. I'm ready, he added, taking the rods and small basket. But I say, Dickie had arisen. There was a new look in his eyes, of disappointment, surprise, perhaps apprehension too. I say, he repeated, looking darkly toward Bob. The temperamental young thing threw him a smile. Sorry, Dickie, but a previous engagement, you know how it is. I can imagine, thought Dickie ominously, watching them disappear. Then his glance shifted viciously toward the house, and there was a look of stern determination in his eyes. As he mingled with others of the guests a few moments later, however, his expression had become one of studied amiability. Dickie was deep. His grievance now was as great as Dan's or Clarence's. End of chapter 10